This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong-Whaley, Associate Director at JMU Civic. And I'm Logan Ziegler, Program Coordinator at JMU Civic. In this episode, we talk with Lieutenant Colonel Nick Swain, who served in the Army for 26 years, including with deployments to Bosnia, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. In 2001, he assumed the role of leading James Madison University's ROTC program, while also serving as a professor of military science. Now, Dr. Swain is the director of X-Labs at James Madison University. Having developed a team of innovative collaborators, X-Labs is recognized nationally and internationally as a leader in transdisciplinary education and assessment, and has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Financial Times of London, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. We invite you to join the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Can you start by sharing your experiences serving in the Army, and how did you come to lead JMU's ROTC program? So I had a strange career. I was a, I was an artillery officer, and um, I, I did uh, I, I started out with a, a very new weapon system called multiple launch rocket system, and so everything I did was like like we were the first ones to do it, and um, and and just, just sort of like here, nobody knows what box to put you in. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so I did that, and um, and then at one point um, in your career, you you get to pick a functional area, um, which is kind of like in the middle of your career. There's a glut of officers, and and so they for in some branches like artillery, they don't need as many majors and, and colonels, and so they farm you out to do something else. And then you, as a senior person, you come back into your branch. And my thing was psychological operations. And that sounds like a, you know, it sounds kind of spooky. Are we doing subliminal things? And actually it's not. It's using marketing and advertising techniques as opposed to bullets to change people's behavior in a combat zone. So I got to go to Bosnia um, and spent a year and a half in, almost a year and a half in Bosnia um, right after the war started doing uh, I had a uh, ran a newspaper, and I, I was a poli sci major uh, and a public administration master's. Um, and I got there, and they had uh, they had fired the first four people because they had, I'll say they had no imagination about what was possible. And you're going into Europe. All of our training was based on the last war that we fought, right? Which was Saudi Arabia. I was there for that, and. And in the Islamic culture, you're not allowed to do lifelike images. That's that's not an acceptable form. So everything they did was either stick figures or like red and black text on white paper. And and now you go into a former East European country and red and black text on white paper looks like communist propaganda. Um, stick figures look like communist propaganda. And so they imagine themselves to be a first world country just having been through a civil war and we're putting out stuff that looked like communist propaganda. And so they kept, they, they, they just, the, the first three people that were there were there for probably a month or so. And they just said like, okay, this, this isn't working. 
you need to go somewhere else. And so I got to rotate in there and I, I said, okay, stop the press. We're not, we're not doing that anymore. And I had to train. So we're at the, you know, this is like 92, 93, I get 92. The internet's just getting started. Amazon's just getting started. My, I had three giant Heidelberg presses set up at Zetra Stadium. I had a, a TV studio that was using um, like still cut and splice video. Um, and, um, and, and, and I had five US radio stations and a newspaper that had a circulation of about 120 a week. People trusted us to be the non, like the, the, the warring parties, there were three, the, the Catholic um, party out of Croatia so everything it culturally was aligned with their religion. So you had the, the Catholic aligned Croatians, you had the um, Eastern European, Eastern Orthodox Serbs, and you had the Bosnian Muslims. And they were all at odds. And the people that were in charge and started the war were all psychologists. And so they knew how to rile up their populations. And after the war, they were still in charge. And so we were trying to figure out how do we, how do we broadcast the truth? How do we get the economy going again. Um, and I, I found it to be the most rewarding. I, we worked seven days a week, 20 hours a day, slept in our offices. Um, the, the, one of the most rewarding experiences I, I'd ever had. Um, but again, nobody knows like how to put you in a box. Like I, I'm again, another weird box. So when I came back, um, uh, I, I, I went on to back to artillery stuff, um, spent um, three years at Fort Hood and uh, was a brigade XO, was a battalion S3 uh, operations officer, a brigade XO, and then a brigade, uh, or sorry, the division's fire support coordinator. Um, so those are all like really high profile positions, which is kind of weird for somebody coming out of a PSYOP job to do that. Um, and then I said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. My family, like the, the next thing was going to take a battalion command. And I, I came out on the list and and said, you know what, I'm just going to go to JMU and teach ROTC. I was recruited by John Morrison, who's the, you know, at the time I was a lieutenant colonel, he was a major. I came here, he stayed in the army and rotated around the world, and now he's a three-star. Hmm. Um, so uh, so that's kind of my, my history. I, I spent the last um, six years of my career here at, at JMU, and um, yeah, it was, I, I really enjoyed it. And then when I retired, I stayed here. In our recent interview with Dan Curran, he mentioned that graduates of JMU's ROTC program continue to serve at unusually high rates. In your opinion, what is it about JMU's program that results in this continued commitment to military service? So I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with a bit of history, and I I'd say um, I always I I, so I had about twelve um, people working for me in the ROTC department. And, and they would always look at the outcomes and say, wow, we're doing really good. You know, our, our students are doing great. And, and, and I think this is true across the board at JMU. You know, be careful about patting ourselves on the back for the successes of our students. I, I, I think that a lot of our students come to us in this unique kind of uh, uh, middle class, upper middle class, um, they're, they go to public schools, they go to public education, they're engaged in sports, they're engaged in government in high school. And, um, and their parents are, are not so wealthy that they pay somebody to do it. 
right? So I'm not I'm not going to pay to go to a private school where all this is taken care of. My you know my kids are in public school, and and we're going to make sure that the public school is good. So we're going to show up to the the theater parents. We're going to show up to the band parents. We're going to show up to the football parents. We're going to show up to the student government. We're going to be engaged, and we're going to make sure our, our our kids that are high school students are engaged. And we're not going to take over for them. We're going to we're going to actually teach them how to how to how to be public leaders. And then those kids come here and guess what? They're actually pretty good at it. And so when they when we give them the skills they need in those disciplines and then they go on to serve um, in the public sector or or do good things in terms of leadership, I think a lot we're all on the same team, you know. So the the parents um, the the raw materials they came to JMU with, we're able to polish those and and align them with others um, that are out there, and and then they make it. They just they know how to make it work. They know how to pull the team together. Um, they know how to collaborate, um, and, and and they I'd say that often they don't really play politics. Like let's let's do the right thing for the right reasons, and um, and you see them even the ones that got out of the army are often in some service organization where they're not going to get crazy rich. Um, you know, like, um, I don't know if you've talked to Jim Biddle yet, though, you know, he got out of the army, went to be a fireman. Yeah. Um, and when you see Jim Biddle, you say, yep, that dude looks like a fireman. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, so I, I, I think that's, that's really why. And, and the other thing I'd note is I've, I've worked at a couple other universities and been around the country. JMU students, and I again, I don't know if this is a product of the Harrisonburg environment, which is a little bit um, unique. Um, our students become very social. They, um, they, when I, um, you know, when like where I grew up, people would all go to the to the bars and restaurants downtown and hang out. And JMU students, for a number of reasons. Um, hang out at their apartments. They have large parties. They're generally pretty peaceful. Um, and, and, they, and, and they hang out and, and, and just enjoy being around each other. That social network that, that is part of the JMU psyche, um, and it's just different than any other school I've been at. Um, I don't know how to say it, but I think all that together is why you see the, the JMU ROTC students continue to serve at a higher rate than even West Point, um, mm. which also has a very social connected, um, as they call it, the long gray line. You mm. know, um, I, I, I would say we're, I would guess that we're probably at least as um, comparable of folks that continue to serve either in the military or in public service. Um, probably at the, at the same or even a greater rate than even West Point. So mm. it, I don't know that to be a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me. So you led the ROTC program at JMU for six years. What is your approach to leadership? So I, was, uh, I, I, I came up with this kind of after I left. Um, so I, I work with these folks at Stanford at the D School. You've met Humera. They asked me the same question. I, my, I call it the Cliff Method. Um, and I go back to my time as a kid. My parents n rarely told me no. Um, usually after the fact, 
Um, <laughs> why did you do that? Um, but but I think it is. Uh, so, so I, I, it doesn't work. I, I can't push you to take a leadership role and tell you what your limits are. If you don't, I, I want you to understand what your limits are and and where there are no limits. So I can't I can't make those for you. I can't build those for you. Um, and so um, the way I envision it is sort of like I, I want you to push as hard and as fast as possible. I. Um, and I know there's a cliff out there, and I know that if you run headlong over the cliff, bad things might happen. So as you get close to the cliff, I'm gonna grab your belt and I'm gonna hold on to you. And, and, and when you get close, I'm gonna say, okay, now's a good time to stop, but if, if, you, wanna, if you wanna try, like, how about, how about you grab a rope and, and, and rappel down as opposed to just jump in? If you wanna jump in, know that it's there. But you know, it, it's like when you get to the top of a roller coaster, and and you're and you feel it drop out from under you, it, you'd feel that. And when you stand at the top of a tall building and look down, you say, "Oh my God!" Like, you, you know, that's like that's really high. I'm going to step back now. Okay, that's fine. Some people can. Some people are really comfortable living on that edge, and some people, some people aren't. And so I I, I want them to be able to play with that edge, play with that cliff, and feel where they're comfortable at. Um, and let them make that choice. So that's my my cliff theory of leadership is I, I'm not going to establish the borders for you. Like and and I look out there and that what I thought was a cliff. Okay, it's not that big a deal, right? And so for you, if that's fine, like if you're comfortable with that, great. I, I don't want to establish those limits for you, so I push and push and push, and, and also hold on. So it's it's no. it's actually feeling that feeling that sense in your stomach, like like. What did I get myself into? And I think the other, and I, we teach this in all our classes. We're, we're going to push you to try things you never tried before without instruction because you have the basics. You got it. You can, and now you can Google all kinds of, of related things, right? So if the first time I deployed to Iraq, I'd never deployed, but I knew that the army had deployed before. Um, I don't think anybody, I, I was at station at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and I don't think anybody had ever deployed out of Fort Sill, Oklahoma before. So my wife asked me, you know, like, so what are the odds, you know, now the first Gulf War, what, what are the odds we're going to, it's like nobody ever deploys out of Iraq. And then we got our deployment orders like two days later. So, um, so I, th I think that uh, getting people comfortable with the idea that I can get to the cliff and if I have to go over the edge, I can figure out a way to do that. And if I may not be comfortable with it, and I may not do it on my own, but if pushed, if I have to, I, I can figure this out. And I think t teaching students how, t teaching people and encouraging people to get to that point is really where leadership happens because following somebody is not leadership reading about what somebody else did in that situation is not leadership. You got to get to the point where you feel your stomach in your chest and your heart starts thumping and you say, oh my God, can I really do this? And I've got 600 people that are following me. And if I screw this up, it's not just me, it's those other 600 people that are following me. 
that are going to suffer the consequences. So the weight of those decisions you have to feel, and the, the only way you do that is if you actually feel the cliff. And so that's kind of, I, I think that's really important and that's what we try to do. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? And what do you remember about how that day changed you? Right, so I arrived at JMU on June 1st, 2001. I signed in and um, I, had, I, I was on vacation, took about a month to settle my house and everything. And then um, right at, in, in September, the, our headquarters that was um, in Northern Virginia, the brigade headquarters was in Northern Virginia. So they had about 15 of the ROTC programs and they, and they pulled us all down to Virginia Beach. And there's an old National Guard, I don't know if it, I don't know if it still exists, but there's an old National Guard training center there. That, um, and so we were in these old World War II barracks um, kind of going through what the expectations are and what, you know, from the Army side, what they wanted us to do and how things were going to be and how we, you know, report and do training and all that stuff. And so we were sitting down there completely cut off from any news. Um, and again, you know, 2001, I, I don't remember if I had a cell phone yet. I mean, think about like, like really cell phones didn't come out in, in large, I, you know, I probably had a Motorola that's as big as a brick, um, something like that. But, you know, so um, something happened and one of the other guys that was there got a text message that a plane had flown into the first World Trade Center. And, and at, you know, at first, you're like, how can, you, you, the idea of a terrorist doing that was not something we considered, right? So it's like, oh my God, what happened? How, how could, you know, like I've been there, how could that, how could a plane fly in it? What, what stupid pilot, you know, what was the pilot doing when that happened? The, the idea of it being a terrorist attack didn't cross our minds. And then what, an hour later, when the second plane hit, everybody knew we were under attack. And so we're sitting there, I, I'm in an ROTC unit. I, 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 don't have, I don't have any combat troops. I don't have any, there's, there's nothing I can do. And I, I'm in Virginia Beach. <laughs> so I'm three hours away. So like there's, there's nothing I can, and, and, and it's happening. And then the Pentagon gets hit as well. So, so all this is happening, and it's kind of like in our neighborhood, but there's like nothing we can do. And so the incredible sense of helplessness, and I, like, I suspect that it doesn't matter where any military people were that day, there's nothing we could do. There's nothing, like the, the planes are in the air, we don't know who else is being, you know, what other planes have been hijacked. And even if we did, we can't, like there's nothing I can do. And and are we? We're not prepared to even like send up an F-16 and shoot down an aircraft with 600 people in it. Like we're, we're not. We, we none of that. I'm sure there are contingency plans for that, but no one is thinking about that. And as a you know, in in my role as an army guy, that's I got. I have no role in that. So uh, the profound sense of helplessness was um, was really incredible. And we're sitting around like, you know. Uh, um, you know, most of us are, are combat arms guys. And so we like, I, I got to get back to my unit. Well, my unit is a university. They're like not going to do anything. And I, I just got like, so there's like, like the, all, all of the, <clears throat> all of the things that 
we would normally do in a unit. I mean, we're just like we're we're out there like completely on an island. Don't know like what do we do, and so um, so then uh, you know, and and we continued like we brought in a TV, and it's like uh, okay, there's like the two towers have been hit, the Pentagon's been hit. It's kind of surreal. We're we're sitting. We're continue. Like the guy in charge is like, well, you know, we're here. There's nothing you can do. And it, so it's it's it was it the the right thing to do. Uh, um, well, I don't know if it's right. It was it was a smart, the non-emotional thing to do was just to continue training because there's nothing we can do to impact anything that's going on. So we're sitting there, listening to him drone on about something about reports and whatever. Meanwhile, the, the Trade Center towers are collapsing, the Pentagon's on fire, um, and a plane crashes in Pennsylvania, and he's droning on about like some stupid report that I'm sure was important to somebody, but not nobody there cared about it. So, uh, so then what, you know, we all just sort of learned to live with it. You know, what are we gonna do? How, how are we gonna respond as a nation? I had just arrived here, hadn't really, like, I hadn't met anybody, didn't know anybody, um, just bought a house, and, uh, you know, is the Army going to call me back to, like, all those things are just going through your head, what what is going to happen, and who do we even attack, who do, who do we respond to, because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's this crazy terrorist organization somewhere in the Middle East that you can't put a finger on, what do we really do, and so... Um, so I, I, I think it was just a huge, for that whole year, probably was um, a year of just figuring it out and how do we live with it. And I, I can tell you the, um, we subscribe to uh, like the um, listservs. And so I was getting listserv every, uh, once the invasion started in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you start getting um, these announcements that somebody was killed, somebody was killed. And I was like, I read this announcement and my heart sinks. Uh, um, some of the guys I even knew. And, and I'm like, I didn't want to delete the message. I mean, it's like, how stupid is that, you know? But yeah. Um, and so living with all that was, you know, and, and we're, we're like, you're not in a place to, that you can impact. So the only thing I could do was really all right. I I know now what these what these students that are Jamie. I know what they're getting into. Um, they're some of their parents are military. They know what they're going to get into. So the only thing I can do is prepare them for that. Um, and where, you know, probably in, in most cases, you'd say that the, um, uh, you know, an ROTC guy is going to say, uh, you know. You, you need to prepare to lead America's sons and daughters. And, and it's this esoteric philosophical argument that, yeah, okay, that's, yes, that's true. Well, now it's like real. Like, like I know what you guys are gonna do when you graduate. You may not know that yet, but I know, and I know how hard it's gonna be. I've been there, I've done that. And so I'm gonna prepare you while you're, I still respect the fact that you're students and that that's the most important thing right now. Um, I still got to prepare you to do, make hard decisions, do the right thing, challenge what's going on, and make sure you do the right thing. And and what? And I think probably the most the most important thing was figuring out how to guide them on what what's your moral compass when you're being asked to do something that 
um, is is uh, I don't know how to say it's, it's almost inhumane. Like you're going to be asked to go out there and potentially be part of killing other humans, and 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 nobody wants to think about that. But you kind of have to think about that. And so so how do you do that? And how what what is your moral compass? And how do you do that when you're being asked to do something? There is no there's no scale. Like there's no is this rational? Is this irrational? There's no scale that you can put people in that you can train them for that. And so, how do you come up with a scale that that you I, that you could use to help you make those decisions? Um, and so, that those are the tools that I that, that I tried to um, build while they were going out. And also, you know, some of the folks that I was working with, you know, they we got to make them harder. We got to like you know, pr prepare them, do PT five days a week. And like, no, no, you're college students. You're, you know, we want you to be good, well-rounded, healthy. I'm not, this is not basic training. This is, this is ROTC. So we're going to keep it real, but we're going to make sure that you're thinking about those, those decisions that you're going to have to make and, and coming up with some tools that you could use. Did you have any sense at the time that the students you were working with were never going to know peace, or at least not know peace for more than two decades. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say, like, I don't, I can't imagine that anybody would imagine that we're going to be at war for 20 years. Now, I, I will say that I, you know, I was, I was in the army when we, you know, we went when I went to Germany, my first assignment, the Red Army faction. There were a bunch of these um, terrorist organizations that operated throughout Europe. Um, and and I, was, I was stationed in Frankfurt, and there were a couple of soldiers that were kidnapped by the Red Army faction and killed. There was a general in Italy that was kidnapped. I think he got released. But so, so what, in reality, we had, we, we had this kind of counterterrorism thing going, but not at this scale, not at, not at the scale where, you know, a third of the army was going to be deployed all the time for 20 years. I don't think anybody imagined that that would be even remotely possible. But when you think about it, like as, as we've seen over the last few days, you don't go into a country like that where the, the enemy is ill-formed but zealous and, and, and win in a conventional way. And so it, it probably shouldn't have surprised us. But, but I'm, I'm surprised we had the the national will to stay in there as long as we did. Um, and, and, and so, so I, 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 I guess the answer is no. I, I had no idea that we'd be there for 20 years, but um, I, I'd be surprised if, if anyone said they really did. I, I want to ask a follow-up question. You've alluded a couple of times in your remarks about the different kinds of experiences people have within the Army itself. And then there's also, of course, differences between those who are serving in the military and, and those who aren't. Um, what do you think are the consequences of these very divergent experiences around you know, a major event like September 11th and then the ongoing global war on terror? What, what, what are the consequences for our democracy, for our society of these divergent experiences? Uh, wow. I, I, so that is a really profound question. And um, I'll try to hit on a couple of things that I would say are kind of high points is, number one, that I, I think there are 
based on the last census, which, okay, we'll give it a shot. You know, 330 million people in America, um, less than 1% have served on active duty in any service. Um, so you're, when you're at, like at, at Fort's, Fort Hood, um, Texas, 50,000-ish people stationed there, military people, plus their families. So there's 150, 200,000 military-related people in that community, and yet the majority of the people there have not served. And so you, you're continually deploying to a combat zone and then coming back to people, you know, to work and live around people that have no context for what you've just been through and have no understanding for that at all. I mean, they can imagine it. They, most people kind of envision something from Hollywood that they, that, you know, they think might have been sort of realistic, but it, it's just, it, and, and people's experience is, is widely different. I mean, you, can, you, you could be stationed um, 20 miles away from each other in Iraq and have completely different experiences. So, um, so there's no like one size fits all kind of experience. And then, um, but when you come back and you're, you know, if, if we actually had, uh, while I was, while I was here, um, our national guard, uh, sorry, army reserve unit that was here supporting us. Um, there were about 10 guys. They got asked because I, I, I think because we were pretty good at it. They got asked to go train Iraqi army guys in the middle of the 2005 or six. Um, so I lost five or six guys to go over there and train. Now they all, they were all healthy. They all came back. But um, but they had a different experience than everybody else, and they're training Iraqis as opposed to being out on the front line. I think they also had to go out on the front line to show them how to do convoys and that sort of thing. Um, but you, so there's all these crazy different experiences that people have, but 99% of Americans have no idea. Um, and I think so when you think about democracy, how does that pan out? I think one of the risks we run and, and what we saw on January 6th is that it, it, there's quite, it's quite possible that you have an us versus them thing. Like I, I've had to go do this. I've, you know, the, the American people have asked me to go do this and now they don't really understand where I'm coming from and respect me. And some of the things that they're, that they're, you know, one side of the political aisle is asking us to do is completely different than how I think it should be. And so, um, I, you know, I don't want to let that happen. And so I'm going to do something about it. So I think that that is kind of one real risk we run. And, and so how, how do we deal with that? And I think it's, it's, it's really important to have those kind of tough conversations um, so that people under, understand, like, you know, how, how are we going to parse that out and still maintain democracy? Because if you don't like what I say, or you don't like my opinion, you're not in Iraq anymore. You can't have this, um, like, we, we don't do military coups here. That's, like, not a thing. You can have really strong opinions. How do you bring that to the public discourse in a productive way? And And, and I think, you know, for the last 30 years, we've been taught don't talk about politics and religion. And, um, and so guess what? We don't know how to talk about politics and religion. 
And what are the things that are that really polarize people and cause them to go to war for the, you know, for the history of humanity. What do we go to war over? Religion. And so religion is inextricably intertwined with politics. And so when we don't talk about those things and then wonder why after 30 years of not talking about them, we can't, we don't know how to talk about them. I think that is incredibly important. And so that's that's why it's so important that we have this Center for Civic Engagement where we try to pull that together and say, like, step back from the cliff, <laughs> um, come back and let's let's figure out how do we how do we move forward? Because that this is not good for the country. It's not good for either side to feel that they're at the brink of disaster and um, and that the only way out is violence. It's, that's not good for anybody. So we got to figure out how do we how do we pull them back and how do we get them to talk about those issues in a meaningful way and productive way, and um, and and it's going to mean that um, uh, we can't. I had a conversation with somebody the other day. We we have to stop this dialogue of using being offended as an offensive weapon, hmm. right? Like. If I say something and it you find it offensive, you can't use that as a barrier and as a as an attack as as a weapon to say to disregard my position. Think about why it offends you and does it really offend you or is it just counter to your position and you can you haven't really thought about your position well enough that you can articulate your position in a logical way and have a conversation about. So stop being offended and start having a conversation. I think that's really the lesson that what I would say from from this, that we really, and as it applies to Center for Civic Engagement, how do we do that? And I think it's so important that we have these kinds of conversations um, and pull that out, so. You, you mentioned when you were serving in Bosnia, um, you know, that, that you kind of went in fighting the last war, not you, but yeah, yeah. The, the United States went in fighting the last war. <laughs> and th the same, we weren't really prepared for what happened on September 11th, and we didn't really know how to fight a war on terror. How can we be better prepared in the same way that you prepare your students for uncertainty um, when they're going to go out into a war zone or out into the world, is there a way that our government and military could be more prepared to be responsive to what happens? So, so that's a that's a yes, no, maybe answer. Um, so, I, I think that right now, one of the things that I see emerging is um, there's there's a sort of a resurgence, and I don't, I don't know how that's going to play out now after. The, after the um, August 31st deadline has passed, but there's been a, a strong resurgence in um, teaching systems of innovation, um, opening doors for new ideas to emerge, and listening to people with real-world experience. I saw the same thing happen after the first Gulf War. Um, and, and so, like, so here's, here's one example. Um, at, now this is remember this is 2000 uh, no 1992 is that whatever it was the first Gulf War a long time ago um, where Sears was still a really big company and um, 
and if you think about the supply chain, if I, if I break a wrench and I'm in Iraq, I have to go, I, the supply chain has to go, like I have to send a request for an item back to the United States and somebody has to package that up like a, like an Amazon kind of thing and package that up and put it on a military aircraft and, it, and that wrench has to then make its way out into the desert somewhere to find me so that I can have this wrench. Like it, it's, you know, if you get it before you get back, good luck, you know? And, and so afterwards we said like, what, what, what amazed me was we get to um, Saudi Arabia and there's a Sears store there. <laughs> and the interesting thing, so, so why does that matter? Well, Sears, if you break a craftsman tool, I don't have to. I don't have to bother the military supply chain. I just take that Craftsman tool back to Sears, and they give me a new one. In in Iraq, in India, in like maybe not in Antarctica, but just about everywhere at the time. And th there was a place where you could do that exchange, and just something simple like that. I thought was great, and and so we we floated that up, and er, like everybody thought it was a great idea, but at some level. That is not a problem that the senior guys, like, that's, that's not the problem they wanted to solve. Like, give me something cool and sexy. But if you think about how many people are out there breaking wrenches and, and the impact of that, it's a huge supply chain issue that could have been solved by just using Sears. Their answer that came back officially was, we don't want to buy Craftsman tools because they're too expensive and people might steal them. And I was like, that's the stupidest thing. Every craftsman tool is stamped craftsman. That's the only way it works is if it's stamped craftsman. So if I go inventory your toolbox and you, you're missing tools and you replace them with some cheap knockoff, it doesn't say craftsman. I'm going to tell you, go, go get me the craftsman thing and replace it. I don't have to mess with that anymore. And so it was like, but it's those simple kinds of, of changing the way we think that is really, really hard for large institutions, really hard. Okay, so, so put that one in a box for a second. The next thing we have is, um, I'm gonna say waste, fraud, and abuse or the threat of waste, fraud, and abuse. And so um, our contracting rules now are onerous. Trying to get anything done at speed is incredibly hard. And so if I need, I need something new, I need a, it, it, I can't, you know, um, I, I need a new anti-mine vehicle, right? So they have these giant anti-mine anti vehicles called Buffaloes that they, um, they expedited the production, all that. Um, and so they, they were able to bend the rules to get that through. Uh, I think they're called MRAPs. Um, so, so they were able to bend the rules to make, to get that through, but you know, I, trying to trying to do that now that we're not at war is going to be incredibly hard, and so we're going to identify these problems. We're going to bring these people back and say, okay, the 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 war is over. How do we equip ourselves and prepare for like some of the the most likely potentials in the future? And we're stuck with doctrine, which says we're going to prepare to fight in Korea still, you know, the, the North Korea is going to invade the South Korea, so we got to prepare for that. 
Meanwhile, we paint all our vehicles sand colored, which works really well in Korea. So we, so we have all these kind of weird things going. We we send people out to the National Training Center, which is a desert in, in a desert situation in California, to prepare to go to Korea. So so we have all these like institutional mismatches that make it really hard to come up with a strategy of innovation and preparation for future eventualities that haven't presented themselves. And so I think we have to, um, we have to be more willing to trust our leaders, junior leaders and middle-level leaders to do preparation that matters and that um, give them a little more flexibility, um, give them more, you know, the authority and responsibility. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, do things like what we do here is, is bring people together. Okay, here's a problem. How are you going to solve it? And, and, and put them in those kinds of situations because I, I think the future problems are going to be even more complicated. Um, you know, I, China, I'm going to go on a limb and say China's probably not going to invade the United States mainland. Um, it's, it's possible, but I'm not envisioning that. Um, but China can present threats through third parties or fourth parties. And how do we counter that? And how do we let people know? How do, well, I don't think we do a great job with cybersecurity in, at the national level. We don't do a great job with research funding to research new ideas and new, new systems that are, um, and I, I was a strong advocate after my time in, uh, in Bosnia that we should invest more in non-lethal ways of dealing with people because one of the things that was very apparent, um, we have a very short attention span with everything except the civil war. If, if you go into Iraq, in, in, sorry, into Bosnia, they th it's, it's real to them that in 1068, Prince Lazar stopped the, um, the Byzantine Empire from invading Iraq or from invading Europe. And if it wasn't for that, um, all of Europe would be te would be speaking Arabic, and and they feel that. And and why aren't you respecting us? Um, we stopped this this um, invasion, and you know for us it's like what are you talking about? That happened in 1068. How's for them it's real. It's like it happened yesterday, and so our sense of time is not the same as everyone else's. And so that that all plays out. If you if 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 I can figure out a way of solving this conflict without killing you, it has generational impact because they will, those, whoever it is in most of the rest of the world will not forget that an American killed grandpa, ever. That is something that's passed down and remembered. And so if we can solve our problems in a more civic-minded way, and it's hard, um, but if you can do that in a way that doesn't kill people, it it really will pay dividends for us in the long run, um, and so that that's that's another that's just another. But how do you invest research dollars in that kind of activity without making it seem like you know you're putting these subliminal messages into people? You know, no, it's it's like how how do how do we do those kinds of things well so that we aren't killing people and that we, we kind of like you know we want people to have to understand that this is this is a better way of life or potentially a better way of life and so we're going to go kill you to prove that i mean like this, this sometimes our actions don't really equate to 
you know, sometimes it's necessary. I, like, don't get me wrong, but but we, we can't go into a place guns blazing and say, isn't democracy great? Uh, um, but, I mean, some, sometimes you have to do that in order to make that message available. But, but right now, I, I'm not sure that we have the messaging tools needed to make that conversation and to enable that conversation. And if you go in guns blazing and you kill a bunch of the elders, nobody else is going to listen to you. And so they may appease you because now you're the guy with the gun, but they're not listening to you. And I think we just saw that happen. Nick Swain, thank you for talking with us today and for your ongoing support of our 9-11 at 20 series. Democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed, and we want to thank you for the sacrifices you have made. While we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden, what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining democracy? Uh, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier about the conversation piece is that um, um, step back a bit, um, reach out to somebody that has differing opinions, read different opinions, um, shake hands, have conversations, share a meal with people that you don't agree with. Um, And uh, and if you can do that, 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 I think that will have a profound effect on the future of our democracy because we need that probably more than ever right now. And, And if... If you could just do that, I think um, it, it would really help. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.